If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 31, our Old Testament reading, as we continue reading through the book of Genesis. It comes from Genesis chapter 31, verses 1 through 21. Genesis chapter 31, verses 1 through 21. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your father and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the stripes shall be your wages, then all the flock bore stripes. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flocks were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padam Aram, to go into the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. Thus far the reading of God's word. You turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. Continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll note that we come to a new section in this larger section of the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord has just unfolded the true meaning of the law for us, rescuing rescuing it, as it were, from the false teachings that were circulating at the time. And he did this by expositing the true nature of a a number of well-known commandments, uh, commandments concerning murder and adultery and vows. Uh, He shifts now and continues the theme of righteousness, but the subject that he takes up is 
how do we practice our religion specifically? In what follows, he goes through a number of areas which would have constituted what we might call religious devotion, religious practice. And he says that there's a false notion circulating about these things, too. There's a wrong way to go about these things, and there's a right way to go about these things. And that's what he takes up, starting in verse 1. So lend your attention. This is the word of God. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Our great God, we uh, come before your word. We rejoice that we can hear it read. We rejoice that we uh, join with your people uh, the world over on this day to uh, sit at the feet of Jesus, uh, who instructs and builds us up, uh, who gives uh, that uh, most excellent portion of the Holy Spirit uh, to produce a true fruit, the fruit of eternal life. We pray that even now as we come uh, to stand before our King, that you would posture us aright uh, to receive, uh, to be true disciples, And to lean not upon our own understanding, but to cast ourselves entirely upon your word, uh, hearing it by faith. Calling upon your name to do what only you can do, Lord, uh, which is uh, to strengthen the life uh, which you have caused to burst forth in the hearts of your people. Uh, be pleased, O oh Lord, to do these things, for we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In the movie Mary Poppins, which my children recently watched, um, the young boy Michael comes to a crisis point. Uh, Mary Poppins has told him of a poor woman uh, in the park who sells bags of food for the birds. Uh, it gives way to what I think is the finest song in Mary Poppins, over which my wife and I had a pleasant disagreement this weekend. We worked through it, and then I was stricken down with the flu, so apparently we didn't work through it well enough. I was chastened. <laughs> Michael comes to the park as his father takes him to work for the day. Mr. Banks takes him to the bank, which also I just caught this time that his last name is Banks. <laughs> When his father takes him to the bank, Michael sees the bird and says, Father, there's the woman that Mary Poppins mentioned, and I want to feed the birds. And to which 
His father, Mr. Banks, says, why would you want to waste your money on a bunch of filthy birds? And then Michael's father goes on to tell him about the foolishness of such an investment and the wisdom of investing his money in the bank where he gains interest. And not just interest, but he becomes a part of something immovable, unshakable. He gains stature, power, influence. He takes his rightful place in that vast empire of England and her wealth. Well, if you've seen the movie, you know that this is quite literally the turning point of the movie. It's a crisis for Michael. It's a crisis for Mr. Banks. It's a crisis for the bank as it results on a run on the bank, which is quite humorous. When it comes to giving to the poor, giving to the needy, it seems there are a number of dangers confronting us. One of the dangers is summed up with the warning of Mr. Banks. That's a waste of money. <laughs> what a waste of money. Your wealth should be working for you. You should be building your empire. You should be advancing your kingdom. If there's nothing concrete to show for it, you've squandered your money to throw it away on people who will never repay. Indeed, birds. It's foolishness to the extreme. Our Lord has already combated that danger in the preceding portion of Scripture where he exhorts us to a, a certain boundless generosity, taking heed not just of those who can contribute to our wealth, but to those who can not repay. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow it from you. The second danger is the danger our Lord addresses here. And it's really just a development of the first danger. It says, well, if I can't get my money back as money, well, then I'll get it back as power. I'll get it back as stature. I'll get it back as renown. I'll get it back as glory. I'll get it back as the people see and sing my praises. It's a certain conversion of one form of good for another. If I'm going to lose the money, I might as well gain glory. But both dangers trade on the same miscalculation, don't they? They seek treasures on earth, either in the form of money or in the form of praise from dust, clay, for we're all from the same mud, as I heard recently. Both outcomes, both outcomes refusing generosity or using generosity to gain in standing betray a heart that is hopelessly earthbound, that is far too clay-minded. They assume that this world's goods, this world's praise are somehow worth it, are somehow ultimate, 
somehow are going to last. But scripture is plain. Indeed, everywhere around you is the testimony. These things don't last. Paul writes plainly, we brought nothing into this world, we take nothing out. Has anyone managed to overcome that? You have not. As for the praise of man, Peter says the glory of man is like the flower of the field that perishes. Meaning, sure, it might be lovely, but man, is it bleeding and frail. Have you ever had someone sing your praises? Oh, he's so good. She's so beautiful. She's so intelligent. She's so charming. He's so strong. As soon as it enters, it's gone. (laughs) That high that you get lasts but for an instant. And then you're left where? Just as empty as before when you were clamoring for it. So what does our Lord call us to? Interestingly, he doesn't say it's wrong to want to be seen. Anybody have a problem with that? He doesn't say it's wrong to want to be seen. That's not what he says. He says you're seeking the wrong audience. (laughs) He says you're living before the wrong crowd. Your eye is hopelessly fixed on the wrong horizon, even as you engage in what otherwise ought to be yielded freely unto heaven, unto a horizon that you can't see and frequently miss. Our Lord says, as you follow me, do so with an eye to the heavens, the kingdom of your heavenly Father. The kingdom that he is pleased to give you. And see if your perspective on these kingdoms don't change. See if your perspective on the riches of these kingdoms don't change. See if your perspective on the glory that these kingdoms offer don't change. How can they not but change? With an eye fixed to the heavens which prompt us to consider a glory that surpasses everything this world has to offer. Have you thought about that? That struck me. He calls him our Father in heaven. I'm getting out of whack here. He calls him our Father in heaven. Fix, fix your eyes upon the heavens. And realize that the visible heavens are but a prompt to contemplate the riches of God's kingdom. We already said he gives more excellent gifts than anything this world has to offer. Sun, rain, oil, wine, not iPads. Now he says as we learn how to give. Not just in terms of generosity, but in terms of the manner and the audience before whom we give. He says, fix your eyes on the heavens, little children. That's the prompt to consider the riches of the kingdom. That's the vastness of wealth which I've come to give you as I become poor for your sake. So that you become rich 
beyond fathom. Look at the sun, moon, and stars, and sea, but a flicker of the Father's riches and abundance. And then consider that he's pleased to give you the Son and everything in him. See if your hand doesn't loosen up a little bit on your wallet. See if your heart isn't just a little bit more expansive to those who are in need. See if you grow in contempt just a little bit for the praise of man in the light of the declaration of the glory of God in the heavens, which is set forth as our inheritance in the Son, incorruptible, imperishable, unfading to the glory of our Father. Are you with me? Because you look blank-faced. I'm going to ask you more directly because I don't care. (laughs) Are you with me? We consider this morning the generosity that wells up in the face of what our king has brought us in the form of this kingdom and our father in heaven. So let's consider first that Christians give and then consider second that Christians give carefully. First, Christians give. When you give to the needy, verse two, thus when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you. Notice here that he's not introducing something new. He's not saying, look, God's people have always been a little bit stingy, but now that's changing because I'm here. (laughs) No, he's picking up on that practice of devotedness to God, which have always characterized God's people, incentivized by God's very own law. You can read about it everywhere in the legislation governing Israel's life. Any number of places you could go, just a few, Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. It's not yours anyway. (laughs) The little plot of this earth doesn't really belong to you. I am the Lord your God. I've given it to you. I am the Lord your God. You're to steward over it as I say. I am the Lord your God. I'm attentive to the needy and the poor. The reason why you can go to any number of places in the law governing Israel's life and find there an attentiveness to the needy, an attentiveness to the poor, a call for those who have much, not to simply advance their own purposes in terms of this world's good, but to give an eye to those who are in need is because this is who God is. He's merciful. He is compassionate. He is tender hearted Deuteronomy 15 7 through 11 another variation on the same theme if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother 
But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not grudge, be grudging when you give to him, because for, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your your undertakings, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. You hear the tenderness of our God on display in that. And the decrepit state of man on display in that. The warnings don't harden your heart. Don't close your hand. We still have that language, right? Tight-fisted. He's a curmudgeon, miserly, Ebenezer Scrooge. Beware the ghost of Christmas past. (laughs) Juxtapose that with the abundance of God's provision, not just to the earth, which we've already considered, sun, rain, harvest, joy, laughter of a certain kind, given broadly, widely, but to Israel. He evokes here that familial aspect. If you see your brother in need, if you see one of your own in need, if you see one who belongs to me in need, is what the Lord is saying there. It evokes the riches of the covenant which have been poured out upon Israel, for they knew not just the common grace goodness of God, they knew the redeeming grace of God, which had taken them from slavery, which had driven out a people in a good land and had planted them in that land such that they had vineyards that they didn't plant, olive groves that they didn't plant, riches that they didn't earn. It's a powerful image of the abundance that God poured out. And this was to reflect itself in Israel's dealing with one another. I trust you see you could go from verse to verse to verse. God is a God of abundance who gives. And he gives not to those who can repay him. He gives not to those who are his equal. And you can consider this by virtue of creation. Even if you consider Adam as a king, which you should, he's still a creature. The chasm that separates God and man is inconceivably vast. And yet God gives to this creature. The difference between Mr. Banks and the pigeons is much less than the difference between God and Adam. And God even cares for the pigeons. That's what Jesus says. Consider the sparrows. (laughs) Consider the lilies. So vast is God's care. Do you doubt his care? Do you doubt his compassion? Do you doubt his tenderness? Doubt it not. From the very beginning, it's been abundantly poured out, not upon equals, but upon inferiors, and that not begrudgingly. You heard that. 
Don't look with a begrudging eye. How can he command that? Because he doesn't begrudge his kindness. We begrudge kindness. He doesn't begrudge kindness. Wow! Thank you. <laughs> I'd like us to be a little more Pentecostal. <laughs> or at least a little less Minnesotan. <laughs> he doesn't begrudge kindness. We keep detailed records. We're the Ebenezer detailing the coal that we give to Bob. <laughs> Giving him half a day off on Christmas. Man, take the day off on Christmas. Mm -hmm. The excellencies of our God are on display in the fact that this is not something new. From the very beginning, God can legitimately command his people to attend to the needy, to open wide their hand, to open wide their heart, for thus he has always done with his creation. And even more profoundly in redemption. For it wasn't to equals or just neutral inferiors that he extends his goodness. It's to hopeless and helpless sinners who have accumulated a debt that they will never repay. By virtue of your sin, you are more impoverished before heaven than the most offensive looking of beggars. We don't like to think about that. We don't like to admit that into the arsenal of our self-conceptions, do we? No, I'm far too respectable for that my Brooks Brothers suit. As our scripture says, we are outside of Christ, impoverished. It's kind of an interesting glimpse into this incongruity of how people who are so impoverished can maintain this facade of such decency. Right now, isn't like, I don't know, like half of the demographic of like 18 to 30 in some sort of like crazy debt, <laughs> like a debt that you're probably not going to repay anytime soon, maybe if ever. <laughs> and yet you probably still live a middle-class life. You kind of live in a lie, aren't you? You, you don't really have anything, do, do you? N no, you, you don't. <laughs> You have a debt that you're never going to repay. That's humbling. If you lean into it, but we don't like to lean into it, do we? So we pay pay our mache over it. Well, at least I can still go to Chili's. <laughs> Maybe you don't like Chili's, I don't know. <laughs> Wherever you go. The true nature of your state is hidden. You won't admit it into your operating understanding of who you are, which is a beggar. You're a beggar. You're a beggar. And that factored into our self-conception. Would that affect how we look at others who are in need? If we consider that we ourselves were in dire need and the Lord looked upon our helpless estate and didn't harden his heart, didn't close his hand, but the Lord Jesus Christ, who was rich beyond telling, became poor, didn't just pour it out from afar, but drew near, entered in, appropriated our debt, took it to himself in the curse of the cross. That's your debt. 
It's not the 300K you borrowed to get an MA in whatever. It's the wrath of a holy God. That's the proper portion that your sins deserve. And he took it to himself. Why? Because the Son has made known the Father's riches of mercy, compassion, tenderness, a tenderness, a mercy, a compassion, which he calls forth for the children to imitate. The reason God's people have always been instructed in the way of generosity and attentiveness towards the needs of others is because they themselves understand by virtue of God's word, by virtue of the testimony of the spirit, that our need was beyond telling. And God poured out riches upon us. That's true. That's true. That's true. Christians give because we have been given. (laughs) Christians are generous because God's grace has abounded to us, we, the chief of sinners, to use John Bunyan's phrase. And so it's no surprise that those who are caught with the gospel, as it were, as those who are caught up in the gospel, as those who are pressed by the excellencies of the gospel, then move to give. Galatians 2.10. It's an odd place to go for giving to the needy. Here Paul is detailing his trip to Jerusalem. Paul, this new apostle, comes and meets with the old apostles, as it were, We read this, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Paul, as one who has seen the riches of Christ, is eager to remember the poor. That follows. (laughs) Paul is one who has recently understood that eternal life has been granted unto him, is eager to remember the poor. That fits. So then why are we so eager to forget most of the time? That's what struck me reading that verse. I was like, Paul's eager to remember. I'm eager to forget. (laughs) Why? Partly it's just we're so comfortable, right? We're just so, com- so comfortable. I, I had the flu two days ago. Even in the flu, I was like, I'm remarkably comfortable. Like, I have air conditioning. I have this bed. I'm, I'm very comfortable. This is striking how comfortable I am. There's a sense in which comfort does not want to admit considerations of discomfort. I mean, you can get really existential in this. We don't like anything that whiffs of our mortality. Was that too high? It might be too high. There's a sense in which poverty reminds us that we're mortal. Poverty reminds us that we're helpless. Poverty reminds us that even as much as we try to control things, at the end of the day, something might befall us that is outside of our control. And I'll prove that that is your instinct. Because oftentimes when you see those who are truly impoverished, what do you think? They probably deserved it. Mm. What did they do to earn this? 
That's you assuring yourself that as long as I don't do what they do, I will never come to the state that they are in. Now are you with me? <laughs> Is it too much? It's not enough. <laughs> He's eager to remember the poor. Why? Because God remembered us. Maybe even for Paul, God remembered him. Because the face of Paul's poverty was actually success. And yet the Lord saw through that, right? Philippians 3, whatever gain I thought I had, whatever, he was gaining, gaining, gaining. Whatever gain I thought I had, rubbish. Being found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's eager to remember. We do have to consider remember who. I think that's important. Remember who. When Paul says, I'm eager to remember the poor, this isn't just a vague general designation for all who are impoverished. There is a sense in which you could make that case for this. I think Paul was eager to preach the gospel to all. Right? That the true riches of heaven for Paul should be heralded before everyone. Kings and the lowly, rich and poor alike, male and female, slave and free alike. In that sense, Paul says, I'm eager to remember the poor. I think you can make that case for that verse in Galatians 2.10, but I don't think it's the most immediate case. Because what was Paul constantly working on in his missionary journeys? You read in Romans chapter 15, you read in 1 Corinthians 16, you read in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. What was he doing in all of those? He's collecting an offering for the misfortune that fell upon the Jerusalem church. He is seeking to relieve the circumstantial poverty that had befallen believers in Jerusalem. And that's what we hear in 1 John 3.17. If anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So who does he see in need? Who does he see in need? His brother. This is the family of God. I hope you're not too offended to say that you have an obligation to the care of the needy, first and foremost in the household of God. Does that offend you? I hope it doesn't offend you. It's plain. I gave you this. Go, go look. Go, go read Romans 15. Go read 1 Corinthians 16. Go read 2 Corinthians 8. Go read 2 Corinthians 9. Read 1 John 3. You can go to James if you want. James 2, 15 and 16. Do the same thing. Look, it's not me. It's the Bible. It's not me. It's God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You take that in any number of directions, but notice, who do you see? It's your brother or sister in the household of God. 
It harkens back to that call from Deuteronomy 15, where he says, there should be no needy among you. Why? Because what I give to one is not strictly for the one. What I give is to be stewarded over in such a way that all know that I am the one who gives. So the way that we exercise this, I can't leave you just with a vague exhortation. The way we exercise this is partly by giving to the diaconal fund. You notice two boxes in the back. One says general fund. One says diaconal fund. Do you know the difference? The diaconal fund is for this very thing. It is for the relief of earthly needs that come up in the life of this church. And not just strictly the life of this church, but even needs that come up adjacent to the life of this church. The Lord Jesus Christ himself set up a diaconate for this very purpose. That care for earthly conditions would fall under the direct auspices of his lordship. And notice how that really complicates any sort of over-spiritualization of things. That's kind of what James was alluding to there, right? It's like, well, your physical condition... Go, be well, you'll be fine. (laughs) He's saying, no, 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 bad. (laughs) He's saying, you're even going to try to theologize your way out of this. Well, I'm saved by faith alone. (laughs) You are justified by faith alone. That is true. None of your almsgiving saves you. None of your acts of mercy are the ground of your acceptance. But what does John say? He says, the giving unto others in need is evidence that God's love abides in us. It's participation in the life that abides in us. See, that doesn't force a certain amount of faith. Every time you give, every time you give to the needy, you're exercising your faith in a way, aren't you? First of all, you're exercising faith in Christ's word because he tells you to do it. (laughs) Second of all, you're exercising faith that indeed this person in their need is but a faint flicker of your condition apart from Christ. And thus, it is legitimate to extend compassion unto them just as you have received compassion. It also believes God's word that the riches of this world are fleeting, that you can't take it with you. And that even though Mr. Banks would be driven nuts by such an investment, the Lord is pleased by such a stewardship. Because it says that the riches of heaven are superior to the wealth of earth. Because the pleasures of heaven are superior to the pleasures of earth. And so we give by faith. As Christ instructs us to do. We also have occasion as churches, as various 
Disasters or difficulties have fallen on different parts of the body of Christ to come together as a body and, and give. To give alms. To give beyond what we usually give. Think about the floods that happened in Kentucky not that long ago. As a denomination, we rallied because one church was completely destroyed. And we were able to see those brothers and sisters back on their feet. That's exactly the type of ministry Paul was undertaking as he eagerly desired to remember the poor. You can think of the war going on in Ukraine and the collections that have gone up to care for the churches there as people have been displaced and need both the consolations of the gospel and very practical care. Those are the things we seek to remember. And not just remember, but to take into our calculations. Such that the way we steward over our households reflects something of the abundance of the way God stewards over his household as he has given us in Christ. But that's not it. There's more. I'm struck by this passage, 2 Corinthians 8, 3 and 4, but they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Just go home and meditate on those two verses and see if you don't come back convicted a little bit. They gave according to their means, indeed beyond their means, willingly begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Every phrase of that convicts. Use your creativity. <laughs> You're looking for something to talk about as a family over the dinner table? How about this? How can we be more generous to those who are in need? How can we use our earthly portion in such a way that truly shows the world that our hope is not tied to this world? How can we do it? That's a better thing to do than arguing over what the best song in Mary Poppins is. We've been given the riches of God in Christ. Open your hands. Open your hearts. Seek the Lord's prayer in prayer. To steward over this in a way that glorifies him that honors him, and that reflects something of the truth of the gospel and our imperishable hope. I'm going to stop there. I have a whole second section about giving carefully, but clearly I got carried away. And so I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to take up Christians give carefully in two weeks. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, you are excellent in all that you do. The riches of your glory are on display in this creation. The wonders which have passed unto us and being called your children are what we will spend age upon age rehearsing. Father, we do acknowledge that we hold the things of this earth too tightly that we are far more interested in the advancement of our earthly estate 
than in considering how we can steward over what you have given us in a way that plainly proclaims that you have given us eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ, that by his poverty we have become rich beyond measure. Father, help us all in this, for we are bound in our thinking to consider only the things of earth. It is only by your spirit that we raise our gaze heavenward, where Christ is seated, where our life is hid, such that we seek the things that are above. Be pleased, O Lord, to do these things among us. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.